is, uh, is good to be together. It's good to be a part of a particular body of Christ, and I am grateful for how God is adding to our number as a church. Uh, last week, it was good to gather on Easter Sunday, and as I mentioned, we, we do this every Sunday uh, because the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is not something just to be remembered annually. Uh, it's to be remembered always, and so we meet every week on Sunday, and glad that you could be with us today. Uh, a central point of last week's message was that we all need the gospel. It's something that was delivered to us, that for those of us who trust in Jesus, we have received it. That's something that happened in the past, but we are even right now standing on it. And as God is doing the work of saving us, we hold fast to it. So, we're following that up with a six-week sermon series just called Gospel Essentials. Our custom is to pick a book of the Bible and go through that book verse by verse. That's what I like doing. I think that's what's most helpful for the church. It helps me be most faithful to what God says. But sometimes we do something a little different. This is one of those sometimes. And what we're going to do in many ways is similar. Again, we'll be going through a passage verse by verse every week. It's just that it won't be in the same book of the Bible every week. The goal of the series is to help us to know the essential elements of the gospel so that we can be people who receive it, stand on it, and hold fast to it. That's why it follows up on the message from last week. We're also currently doing a Sunday school class on evangelism. We do that at 9 o'clock. For any adults that are interested, you can come and join us. There was a lot of us in here this morning for that. There was 48 of us, uh, I counted because I had to for uh, one thing, and uh, um, there's a lot of us, uh, and it is good. I kind of got warmed up. I preached a little bit uh, in Sunday school. We had some discussion stirring us up to think about uh, the work of evangelism. So uh, we're doing that class and this sermon series at the same time on purpose. Uh, they go together. And so invite you to join us for that uh, in the coming weeks. But in this sermon series, we're just going to focus on the essentials. When I was a baseball coach, um, what I always had to work on, no matter, I coached kids that were as young as fourth grade and as old as, or sorry, as young as four years old and as old as ninth grade. And with all of them, we worked on a few essential things. We worked on hitting, running, throwing, and catching, right? It doesn't matter how long these people have played baseball, those were the essentials. We needed to do those things. If you bake a lot, there are a few essential ingredients you always need to have on hand in your pantry that will be a part, an essential part of baking. Things like flour and sugar and butter, and if you're baking correctly, chocolate, right? That, that needs to be, that's an essential item as you do the work of baking. So for these six Sundays, we're going to look at the essentials of the gospel. And we start today with gospel essential number one, and I have it first on purpose, and that is this. God is. God is. So, we're going to talk about today who God is. I think summaries are helpful. Part of what binds us together as a church are that we agree, we, we might disagree on a number of things, but what we agree on are ten articles of our church's statement of faith. They agree with other evangelical free churches as well. And so, before we read the passage today, I like this 
three or four sentence summary of who God is. And if you believe this, I want us to read what's on the screen together. We're going to confess together. This is what binds us together. We believe this to be true about God. And so if you would read it with me, that would be great. We believe in one God, creator of all things, holy, infinitely perfect, and eternally existing in a loving unity of three equally divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Having limitless knowledge and sovereign power, God has graciously purposed from eternity to redeem a people for himself and to make all things new for his own glory. Man, that's who our God is. We get that from studying Scripture, right? And so really all of Scripture reveals who God is. And so if I'm going to do a message on who God is, I could have turned almost anywhere in the whole Bible. But we're going to look at the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. I've never done a sermon series in the book of Revelation. I've preached a couple messages from it. And for you, maybe as you do your own Bible reading, maybe you, have, you find the book of Revelation really intriguing, or maybe you find it really intimidating, right? It's a book unlike many of the others that we would read. It is a fascinating book. It's a unique type of writing called apocalyptic, which just means it is seeking to reveal something that was previously hidden. Right, Something that was veiled, that was not totally visible, and it's unveiling that. It's revealing something. And, and part of the nature of apocalyptic writing is it uses lots of images and symbols, which is in part what makes it both intriguing for some and intimidating for others. Revelation was written in the first century by the Apostle John, disciple of Jesus, close friend of Jesus, author of the Gospel of John, is now by this time, this is much later in his life, he's in exile on the island of Patmos. And he is receiving visions from God that he writes down for the good of a church that at that point has become severely persecuted. So he's writing... Visions given to him from God to a persecuted church dealing with all kinds of suffering. They were seeing evil face to face. And in this context, God gives John a vision aimed at giving them hope in a God of power and judgment and victory. So, the way the book is set up is is kind of just a quick overview We have a vision of the risen Christ after a short introduction in chapter 1. And then chapters 2 and 3 have seven letters written to the churches. Chapters 6 through 20 are the accounts of coming judgments and there's seals and bowls and trumpets. And then finally in in chapters 21 to 22 we get to the return of the king to establish the new creation. But tucked in there, before we get to the the passages about the judgment, we have these heavenly throne room visions in chapters 4 and 5. And I think, so so chapter 5 is is primarily focusing worship on Jesus, the Redeemer, the Lamb who was slain. We sing songs often that come from Revelation chapter 5. We just did last week. I think Revelation chapter 4 is one of the clearest descriptions of who God is in all of the Bible. And so 
That's where we're going to look today. Here's the argument for today. Pretty simple. The gospel begins with God who is holy, almighty, eternal creator, seated on the throne and worthy of worship. That's what we see in Revelation chapter 4. So we're going to read God's word. If you're able to, would you stand as we read the very word of God? First, let's pray. Oh God, we, we need help. We want to see you clearly. We come in here maybe distracted uh, by all sorts of other very real needs. But what we need most is this. For you to reveal yourself to us. We, we need to get a glimpse of your glory. That we might respond rightly by bowing down in submission and worship to you. And so, would you be at work toward that end for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen. Revelation chapter 4. This is the word of the Lord. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things, and by Your will they existed and were created. Amen. You can be seated. So I told you, even as I, before I read that, that there's going to be some things in the book of Revelation because there are so many images and symbols that seem kind of foreign to us. In part, that's because Revelation is filled with images borrowed from the Old Testament, especially from the Old Testament prophets. And you might, just might not be very familiar with those Old Testament prophets. This passage itself is filled with allusions to the books of Isaiah and Ezekiel especially. 
One thing that can happen in the book of Revelation that I don't want to happen today is that we get so fixated on figuring out what these pictures all are are intending to point us to, these four living creatures. How does it work that they have eyes all around and within? What does that look like? We're trying to picture creatures. We're trying to nail down for sure, here's who the 24 elders are, and here's exactly this and that, but let's not miss the point. The point is the one who is seated on the throne. 53 times, 53 times in the New Testament, the word throne is used. 14 of them are in this chapter. And there's a bunch more in the next chapter. About 75% of the times the word throne is used in the New Testament, it's in the book of Revelation. The The book of Revelation is about the one who is seated on the throne. And so it's important to note as we get started that this is a heavenly vision. This is a vision both of things to come and things as they are in the heavens. And so John in verse 1 is invited up into that. He says, after this I looked and behold, he uses the word behold a lot in this book. Saying, look, I want your attention, look here, here's where I want you to look. After this I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. So first he sees something, it's a door standing open in heaven, and then he hears something. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Now if you're like me and most other people, I think, when we're experiencing personal suffering to a great degree, we start to turn a little more inward. Remember I told you the context of the book of Revelation. John is writing to Christians who are being severely persecuted and suffering greatly. And while our tendency in those moments could be to start to focus inward, it's not surprising that God would give John a vision to write down about what they should do in looking upward. He's invited to see this is what's going on in heaven. So let's begin by seeing what he saw. Verses 2 through 7 tell us what's happening on and around the throne. Verse 2, at once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Here he doesn't even mention God by name. He just mentions there's one seated on the throne. And we don't have any physical descriptions of God in Scripture. We have attempts at at, at using comparisons to give us a sense of who God is. And the best that John can do with the human language is what we see at the beginning of verse 3. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. Precious valuable, treasured, luminous stones. That's the best that he can do with the human language. And then he goes on to explain what's happening around the throne. The rest of verse 3 says, And around the throne there was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald, Verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. So you get this spectacular picture in your mind of, well, I don't don't 
quite understand everything, but there's a throne in the very center. And one seated on the throne. And then there's this rainbow around it. And then there's 24 thrones with 24 elders. And they're wearing white garments. And they've got crowns on their heads. So we're getting a sense of, of things now. I'm trying to figure out, well, who are the 24 elders who get to be so close to the throne? Well, you know, it could be that the 24 elders are the, the, the representatives of the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. And the 12 disciples of Jesus in the New Testament. That's, that's 24 more frequently in the book of Revelation, the elders are, are angelic beings. So there's beings of some sort that are gathered together around the throne. And it's a glorious picture. We're going to find out what they're doing later, but right now he's just telling us a description of what he's seeing. Let's look at verse 5. Verse 5 it's telling us what comes from the throne. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder. How many of you, and this is maybe, maybe it's just kids, but I don't think it's just kids, adults as well. How many of you are a little scared of thunderstorms? Right? There's something that's really powerful when you're just kind of sitting, and sometimes those thunderclaps just come out of nowhere. And stuff in your house even shakes, right? And, and thunderstorms are symbols of, like, I mean, they remind us of something a lot more powerful than us. And so what's happening from the throne, so we've got this picture of what's happening around the throne, what it looks like, but from the throne are coming flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. The kind that scares you and makes you stand in awe. Let's continue with verse 5. Now we're getting before the throne again. And before the throne, see everything, everything's in relation to the throne. That's why I say the throne is at the center. Because we're talking about this is around the throne, this is from the throne, this is before the throne. Everything's about the one seated on the throne, right? So, so, so it says, before the throne were burning seven torches of fire which are the seven spirits of God, and before the throne there, were, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Well, again, lots of symbolism. I'm trying to figure out what does a sea of glass look like, like crystal. We might get tripped up on this idea of the seven spirits of God. What, what's that about? Again, lots of numbers used in the book of Revelation. Seven being the number of completeness and perfection. So, so all sorts of different spirits, but the, maybe saying the seven spirits of God, maybe just referring to the Holy Spirit, the, perf, the perfection of the Spirit of God. Verses, the rest of verse 6 says this, And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, and this is where you're like, oh, I'm trying to figure out what this looks like full of eyes in front and behind. And then it describes them. Oh, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. Referring back likely to the cherubim and seraphim from Isaiah and Ezekiel. And we read this and it would be tempting to just kind of scratch your head again and try to figure out well, what, what exactly does that look like. I just want you to keep in mind, it's about the one on the throne. Everything is coming from, to, around, before the throne. 
And now in verses 8 through 11, I was actually just going to preach on verses 8 through 11, but I thought, well, we've got to cover that too. This is what John saw. But in verses 8 through 11, this is where it gets really exciting because it's not just what John saw, it's what John saw and what John heard. So let's look at this. This might be one of my favorite visions of who God is in the entire Bible. Here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking you can't read this and shrug your shoulders. I'm thinking you can't look at verses 8 through 11 and maybe not even, at least in your heart, but maybe even verbally say amen at some point. Listen to this. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. These four living creatures filled with eyes so they can see everything and their eyes are fixed on one thing, God on the throne. And while John can't describe in words what God looks like, we get a sense of what God is like from what these creatures are doing. Did you notice it said like they can't even stop? It's not like they're going to get distracted with something else. It's not like their eyes are going to turn to something better. They never cease day and night to cry out, holy, holy, holy. They don't just say it once. They cry out, holy, 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 because they know there is no one like our God. He is set apart. He is pure. He is good. He is revered above all. There is not, there never was, and there never will be anyone or anything like Him. And so, day and night, holy, 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 is what they cry out. And they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's what he's called, the Lord God Almighty. He is the ruler. He is the one who holds sway over all things. Compared to him, the politically powerful are puny, and, and the nuclear power is negligible. Like there is no power on the face of this earth that compares with the one who is called Lord God Almighty. And he is seated on the throne. Verses 9 and 10 make that clear. Do you see that there in verses 9 and 10? Verse 9, the one who is seated on the throne. Verse 10, they're falling down before him who is seated on the throne. He is on the throne. This almighty Lord God. He will rule and reign forever. There's no term limits and there's no checks and balances. This is the God who is completely good and completely powerful, who sits on the throne and reigns forever and ever. Speaking of forever and ever, there's also an emphasis on, on the eternal nature of who God is. It says in verse 8 that Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Past, present, and future. There was never a time when this God did not exist. Everything else we know comes into existence and will eventually fade, but He has no beginning and no end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. And then it says in verse 9 that He lives forever and ever. Right? 
who lives forever and ever. It says that both in verse 9 and in verse 10. And He is the Creator. Notice how this ends. We're going to come back to a couple spots that I missed, but notice how it ends. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Do, do you pause often enough? Like, like stop looking at your phone and your busy schedule for a little bit? Do you pause often enough and just take in the beauty and majesty of what God has created? By His will, everything that exists now exists. Galaxies and grapes called into being by God. Planets and puppies sustained by His mighty hand. Sounds and smells created at His command. Mountains and music and math and mothers and oranges and oceans and all sorts of other things. The human body in all of its tiny, intricate complexities, all of it created by His will. And so it's no wonder that the response to God that John sees in this vision is a response of worship. That this God, who is holy, who is almighty, who is eternal, who is the creator, who is on the throne, it's no surprise That what's happening in heaven is all attention is directed to the throne. And what's happening is worship. Did you notice that as we walked through this? He is worthy. Verse 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne. Verse 10. The 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. Remember before it said they were wearing gold crowns. These, these beings look really important. White garments, they get their thrones centered right around the very throne of God. And they're wearing golden crowns on their head. But as they look to the one who is on the throne, they recognize how unworthy they are and how worthy he is. And they cast their crowns before the throne. From Him and through Him and to Him is everything. So to God be the glory forever. Amen. I love the picture that we get of who God is in Revelation chapter 4. And we needed to hear this. Because here's the thing. The gospel doesn't start with us. We start in this gospel essential sermon series with this one because we need to start with who God is. We need to start with a vision of a glorious God who is holy, almighty, eternal creator seated on the throne and worthy of worship. Let me tell you why we need to start here. Because if we don't, listen, if we don't start with this glorious vision of who God is, then our sin doesn't seem all that bad. But if God is who He says He is, then our sin is cosmic treason. If we don't start with this glorious vision of who God is, then the threat of God's judgment doesn't seem that real. But if God is who He says He is, then He is a God to be feared. And if we don't start with this glorious vision of who God is, then the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus don't really seem all that necessary. But if God is who He says He is, then we need a perfect substitute to win victory over sin and death. If we don't start 
with this vision of who God is, then our salvation doesn't taste so sweet. But if God is who He says He is, we who are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus live and die with eternal hope and we proclaim this to others. God saved a sinner like me and He can save you too. So, when it comes to application, I don't have a long list of here's things you ought to do. What, what do you do in response to who God is? You fall down and worship Him. That's, that's what you do. That's, that's, that's it. This is what we're about as a church. We talked about this in our Sunday school class earlier. In front of the bulletin every week is our vision. We will, as a church want to become increasingly molded by God's Word and motivated by God's glory as we make disciples throughout God's world. Right in the center of that, we want to be a church motivated by God's glory. How, how do we fight addiction? Motivated by God's glory. How do we turn from temptation to sin? Motivated by God's glory. How do we love our neighbors and do the work of evangelism? Motivated by God's glory. How do we make disciples of our kids at home? We do it motivated by God's glory. How do we love our spouse when we don't feel like it? We do it motivated by God's glory. This is at the center of what we're seeking to do as a church. We want, like we're failing if we're not trying to, as best as we possibly can, give us all a glimpse of the glory of God. That's what motivates us in everything. I'm going to read a relatively long quote, but I think it's really important from a guy named Paul Tripp. Here's what he says. So a central ministry of the church must be to do anything it can to be used of God to turn people back to the one thing for which they were created, to live in a sturdy, joyful, faithful awe of God. This means that every sermon should be prepared by a person whose study is marked by awe of God. This sermon must be delivered in awe and have as its purpose to motivate awe in those who hear. Children's ministry must have as its goal to ignite in young children a life-shaping awe of God. The youth ministry of the church must move beyond Bible entertainment and do all it can to help teens see God's glory and name it as the thing for which they will live. Women's ministry must do more than give women a place to fellowship with one another and do crafts. Women need to be rescued from themselves and a myriad of self-interests that nip at their hearts and awe of God provides that rescue. Men's ministries need to recognize the coldness in the heart of so many men to the things of God and confront and stimulate men with their identity as those created to live and lead out of a humble zeal for God's glory rather than our own. Missions and evangelism must be awe-driven. Awe of God is one of the things that will keep a church from running off its rails and being diverted by the many agendas that can sidetrack any congregation. We must be committed to do anything we can to be that generation that commends God's works, His glory to the next generation, so that they may be rescued and motivated by a glory bigger than a typical catalog of glories they would choose for themselves. So, Pastor Nick, thank you for what you're doing as you work with students to keep in front of them the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pastor Nick's not into entertaining. That's not, he's not here to, like, to be a social event planner. Right? He's here to pastor people, and he only pastors people well in as much as he directs their attention to the glory of God. That's also what he tries to do as he leads us musically. 
keeping our attention on the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So grateful that we have a church filled with people like this. I'm grateful for a wife who, who keeps this in front of me and our family. I'm grateful for elders and deacons and deaconesses and church members for keeping this the main thing. For not letting personalities and politics and preferences get in the way of worshiping a holy, almighty, eternal creator God who is on the throne and who is worthy of our worship. So as they are crying out even now in the heavens, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for the glimpse of your glory revealed to John and shared with us in Revelation 4. May this taste be enough to bring sinners to repentance. Make us a church increasingly motivated by your glory, not just in what we do when we're together, but when we're out in the community, like even this week, working at our jobs, living in our homes, going to our schools, Help us, we pray. In the name of the Lamb who was slain, who is worthy to receive blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen.